have a look at the Bible and all those things that we know about three disciples that were named apostles. I have got some reading, quite a few readings actually, and I know that people are struggling to hear, so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask for volunteers, but we'll pass the mic around, okay, so that everybody can hear. So we're not reading them all at once, but if I just hand them out, there are six of them. Those who are happy to read, take one, pass the rest on. You'll regret sitting at the front, Jill, won't you? So, I don't know why I chose these three. I thought by this time of the year that all the others would have gone. So, I wanted to, well, anyway. So, the ones we're looking at are Simon the Zealot, James, son of Alphaeus, and Judas, son of James. So, I thought I'd actually go on the internet and find out what you can find out about these three people because there's very little in the Bible itself. And apart from the fact that Judas is known as Thaddeus, because in some Gospels, Judas, other than Judas Iscariot, is not mentioned. He's called Thaddeus. And sometimes he's called Jude. But apart from that, very little definitive information. There's some thought that Judas may have written the book of Jude, but it could have been written by Jesus' brother Judas. Or, and yes, Jesus did have a brother called Judas. Or not. So I thought, okay, because that's the way my mind works. Let's see if there's anything about where they died and when they died. And I was staggered when it came up very forcefully, if you like, that Simon the Zealot was martyred by crucifixion in 61 AD in Caister, current Lincolnshire. And I thought, shouldn't I have known that? And then I looked a bit further and then some accounts gave the date as 74 AD, not 61, again in England. And then some say he died in Samaria, and some then Persia. And so I realised that we, I came to the conclusion we don't have any firm information about, about them at all. And I thought, well, what else don't we know about the disciples? Well, we don't know what they looked like. We don't know how old they were where they came from, why they started to follow Jesus in the first place. And that made me reflect on why I decided to follow Jesus and how following him had changed my life. And I thought I'd just share a little bit of that with you. I, I did it several years ago. So I was confirmed at 16 in West Hartlepool, which is where I was born quite keen on God actually at that time but there's something and I don't remember what caused me to drift away and it wasn't helped by the teacher we had who taught scripture at grammar school who was just explained away all the miracles by saying things like well of course Lazarus wasn't dead he was in a coma and for me either the Bible's true or it's not true there are many things I don't understand about it but for me, that doesn't mean it's not true. Anyway, I went to uni, met Helen, we got married, started a family, and when I was 27, I was offered a sales job that would mean me doing a fair amount of travelling, staying away overnight, spending time in France. We agreed together, 
that I should take it. But I allowed it the job, that is, to dominate my life. By now we had two boys, I was away too much, and Helen had to pretty much run the family on her own. I'd leave early, come home late. When I came home, it seemed like I came home for an argument. Not at all Helen's fault, by the way. Now I was questioning what life was all about. As a working class kid from Hartlepool, I had a lovely family, a biggish house, two cars, money in the bank and a good job. To the outside world, I had absolutely everything. So why did I feel so rubbish? Helen had started going to church, and whenever she came home from there, we had another row. And I felt that God would probably cause us to split. When I was in Wales on business, I came upon someone who had taken their own life in a deserted car park in the most desolate place. It was a really, I don't know, I was, it was coming up to Christmas, it was freezing cold, I'd stayed in a country hotel, I was driving to my first call of the day over these, this barren area, when suddenly, and there were flecks of snow everywhere, suddenly this heavily pregnant lady came running across the road in this, flagging me down. And she said, I was driving past the entrance of that car park, and I think there's somebody in there that's committed suicide. So she jumped in the car and we went and he, he had. And what really shocked me as well was when I could, miraculously he got a signal, called the police, the policeman came, oh yeah, it's Christmas, we got loads of them. Anyway, questions, more questions. And in desperation I started to read the Gospels and suddenly the words made sense. Stuff I couldn't understand before became clearer. Unbeknown to me, people were praying for me. And then, a little while later, we were due to go on holiday. We still went on holiday as a family, even if we were rowing most of the time. And the day before we were due to leave, Helen's back went, and she virtually crawled up the stairs to bed. She said, I don't think we've got to go on holiday. Weirdly, I sensed that God was telling me to lay hands on Helen on her back and pray for healing. And this is before I was a Christian. So Helen lay on her tummy on the bed and I put my hand on her back and prayed. And this tremendous heat came from my hand and spread over her back and her back pain disappeared and we went on holiday. Shortly afterwards, at the age of 42, in our bedroom, I gave my life to Jesus. And things were not immediately brilliant. But with Jesus' help, our relationship was restored and we looked into how we could best serve him. So any regrets? Only that I wish I'd done it earlier. Was everything suddenly wonderful? No, it wasn't. We had to work. But I really believe that our marriage is like the cord of three strands and that Jesus is one of those and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. I know that's not always the case but that's what I believe. 
when it comes to the healing, and it's a really difficult subject, and I'm not going into detail, but initially I thought, wow, this is brilliant. I can do the NHS out of business. <laughs> and God doesn't work like that. And Helen's best friend, Alison, at that time was suffering from breast cancer. And Helen shared with her what had happened. And so Alison came up and asked me to pray for her. I remember she and I used to have brilliant arguments. She was a really fiery, lovely lady. And I remember we were sat there on the settee. And I was sat there like this. And she said, what's up? And I said, I laid hands on Helen's back. You've got breast cancer. What do I do? And she went, oh, Tony, for goodness sake. <laughs> and, and we prayed. And she wasn't healed. Not physically. Um, she died. All I can say is that her widower, who's now married again, but only very recently, and we're talking, best part of 30 years ago that this happened, and her children, who are now, two of them have got families of their own, are thriving. And I thank God for that. But it's too big a subject to go into at the moment, but anyway. Back to our three friends. James, Simon, and whatever the other one was called. Anyway, I've forgotten him already. Judas. Anyway, I keep racking, racking my brains, asking myself the same question over and over. What do we know about these people? As I say, we don't know what they look like. The Gospels don't go into that detail. We don't really know what Jesus looked like. The only clue about Jesus I can recall is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, where it says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and with men. That doesn't give us a lot. Funny, isn't it? In modern novels, the hero is often described down to the minutest detail. Whereas we know so little about the physical attributes of Jesus and his closest followers. But I guess it's not important. We don't need to know. So as I kept racking my brains, it came to me, we know loads about these disciples. Because it's all written in the Gospels. We just don't know anything specifically with their names against it. So I felt I was being guided to go through a little bit their life with Jesus. Just picking out one or two accounts. And I know it's kind of a cheat in a way because all the disciples went through that. The first one I want to look at, and it's one that you, you all know, is Luke chapter 6 where it tells us that Jesus went up a mountain to pray. When he came down, he chose 12 of his disciples to be apostles. Check out what apostle means. It means those that would have authority. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because people said about Jesus, he spoke with authority. And I guess that means he didn't just go around saying, listen, God says this, God says that, the law says this, the law says that. He would say, truly I, I say to you, it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Truly I say to you, with authority, 
So why did he choose these 12? Why were our friends part of them? Well, because Jesus had prayed, but I believe there's also a clue in one of the parables of Jesus. So who's got number one, Luke chapter five, verses 33 to 39? They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Thanks, thanks, Jill, that was really clear. So I know there are different interpretations to this parable, but I believe that Jesus is saying that the old and rigid wineskins are the Pharisees and the like. The new and elastic wineskins are his disciples. Here I believe Jesus is saying that I need my followers to be open to my teaching. I'm going to expand their understanding of God and also of scripture. And I can't work with people who have rigid minds and will argue with me constantly as you Pharisees do. So I believe that our three friends were chosen because their minds were open. I use that little puzzle as a, is an analogy if you like to that, not a good one I'm sure. But I believe that the Pharisees and the like were putting God into a box and Jesus needed people who could think outside the box prepared to do that and accept his teaching so by being among the twelve disciples I believe that our friends Simon Judas and James had more open minds and were teachable We also know that they were at the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus oversaw the feeding of many thousands of people with just five loaves and two fishes. Our three friends would have been amongst those that have handed out the food and seen it somehow replenish to the extent that there were loads left over. Wouldn't you like to have been there? Seen that? Felt it? How did it feel? For me, the miracle has, this miracle has echoes of the past. And I wonder when they went to think about it, because they'd know scripture, whether it reminded our friends of the story of Elisha and the woman with the oil. Who has 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7? The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? 
Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him, and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One of, one of my concerns when I was preparing this was that I'd finished too early. And if I keep on going with this, we'll have to serve tea rather than... <laughs> so God's answered that prayer. I was really afraid of that. I'm going to read out one of the... I'll do it. One other thing, because I'm... trying to give examples, if you like, of three different things that Jesus has done. The healings, the things like the loaves and fishes. There's also his control over nature. And we've all know the story when he says to his disciples, let's, let's cross the lake. And they took him just as he was. He falls asleep. The storm squall sets up. And the disciples are terrified. Jesus stands up and calms the storm. There are clues everywhere in the Old Testament to Jesus. And who he is. Psalm 148 I'll, just, I'll read that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. So there are many clues for the, for the apostles of who Jesus was. I was going to go through the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the fact that these three people had their feet washed by Jesus. Like the others, they didn't realize that Judas Iscariot was going to betray Jesus. It's interesting that the Bible says nothing positive about Judas Iscariot. At the same time, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, none of the apostles said, that would be that low-life Judas. We never could trust him. So he managed to keep that 
what he, how he really was from, from them. So they had their feet washed by Jesus. They, like Peter, said, we'll never leave you. We'll fight to the death. And they all ran away. And, and when Judas and the guards approached, they would have seen Jesus being crucified. They will have been in that room when, with the other disciples when Jesus suddenly appeared and said, peace be with you. They will have been in the upper room when the, high, when the Holy Spirit came down. They experienced all of these things. They spent three years with Jesus and now their ministry really starts. Which is more or less where we came in. We really don't know what happens to them after. But I think we can safely assume that they spread the gospel fearlessly following Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our friends walked with Jesus. They knew him personally. That's what Jesus wants us to do.